0: Our sermon this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 22. Turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Flip there on your on your devices. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, verses 9 to 22. This is our last sermon uh, in the book of... So we went through 1 Timothy last summer, 2 Timothy this summer, kind of into the into the fall. And uh, so we're done. Done with First and Second Timothy. We're going to jump back into Luke. I think we'll probably do a psalm next week, kind of a... Like a palate cleanser. Jump back into Luke. We'll spend uh, maybe a, a month or two there until the Advent season, and then we're going to go through uh, go through some of the genealogy uh, in um, in the Gospel of Matthew. But that's kind of the the forecast for the coming uh, weeks and, and months. Second Timothy. Quick lay of the land before we before we jump into verses nine through twenty two, uh, chapter one. Uh, Paul instructs Timothy. Paul is kind of encouraging and kind of telling Timothy, guard the gospel, right? Uh, remember the good news that Jesus died to save you from your sin. Don't be ashamed of it. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. So, so uh, in view of that gospel, work hard, be diligent, be like a, a farmer, be like a soldier, be like an athlete, trust in Jesus and pursue godliness at all costs. 2 Timothy 3, uh, just the reality that uh, sinners will oppose God and will oppose the gospel. And if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, sinners will oppose you. So, So persevere even through persecution and suffering that comes at the hands of uh, enemies of of the gospel. And specifically, as he gets to the end of chapter 3, he says the way that you're to persevere, the way that you are to kind of, um, you know, endure through suffering at the hands of sinners is by rooting yourself in God's word. All scriptures, God-breathed. It's profitable to help you as a Christian kind of work your way through uh, this, this life. So, so persevere by rooting yourself in the Word of God. Chapter 4, kind of the outworking of that, uh, preach the Word of God to others. right? Preach the Word, be, be ready uh, in season and out of season your entire life until you, die, until you die and go to meet Jesus. Preach the Gospel and be faithful in proclaiming it. That's kind of where we've come in Second Timothy thus far. And this last passage is really uh, just kind of some personal uh, greetings from Paul to Timothy, kind of, you know, sending word on behalf of others, sending word to others and things like, things like that. But also kind of in the context of it, Paul is going to, to publicly declare his trust in God and his trust in the sovereignty of God. He's going to say that God is the only one, like even if everyone leaves me, I trust God. But also at the same time, he's going to say, I need friends. I need people. I need relationships. I need the body of Christ around me to help with, with that. So we're going to see those two truths uh, kind of coming out of, out of this, this text here. So let's read it and pray, and then we'll, then we'll get to work. Starting in verse 9, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. And he's gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus has gone to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and bring the books, and above all, bring the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Lidas and Claudia and all of the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless these next few minutes as we read and study and meditate on your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it and to believe it and to obey it. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so chapter 4, verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, please come here. I want you to to come. I want to have you here. I want to sit down with you. I want to spend time with you. It would be deeply encouraging to me to see you and to, to hang out with you, to hear about how the Lord is working in your life and to hear about what's going on in, in the churches. And so Paul is anticipating that and he's asking Timothy to come there and be with him right? He's kind of, this is kind of, this is called just the ministry of presence, right? I just want you to be here with me. I don't want anything from you per se. I don't want money. I don't want you to call in any favors on my behalf. I don't need anything. I just want you to, to be there with me. I don't need you to have all the right words to say, I don't need you to do anything particularly extraordinary, You're right. like I, you know, and this, this we, we experience this in our lives, right, I'm, I'm sad, I'm hurting, I'm in distress, I'm in despair, and sometimes just a person there with me, not even saying anything, not even doing anything, not even giving me anything, but just a person there with me is deeply, uh, deeply comforting, the ministry of, of presence. Um, in the book of Job, so uh, Job's friends in the book of Job get a lot of things wrong, right? The first chapter, just like a nightmare day for Job. He, you know, loses all of his stuff. People come in and steal everything. His whole family dies. I mean, he becomes terribly ill. Even his wife is like, "Man, you, I don't know what you've done, but it's bad. You should just curse God and die." Like things have gone have gone terribly. And then for the next you know thirty plus chapters, Job's friends are all kind of there speaking to him, and they say a lot of things that are foolish, and they say a lot of things that aren't necessarily wise or right or good. But the, but at the beginning of the book, uh, there, there's wisdom, and they just come and they they visit him, right? The the uh, Job chapter two verses twelve to 15, twelve to thirteen. When Job's friends saw him, or when when Job's friends saw Job from a distance. They didn't even recognize him. That's how how sick he was and how kind of distorted his, his figure was. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And then they sat with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Right? This is the the ministry of presence. Uh, do your best to come to me soon. Just be here with me. Just be a, a, a person in the room with me so that I can be reminded in my soul that I'm not alone and that this all is not for, for nothing. Please do your best to come to me soon. And then Paul starts to outline kind of what some other people uh, have done for him, and it runs the gamut, right? For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica, Demas is mentioned twice elsewhere in the New Testament, Colossians 4, 14, and Philemon verse 21. And it says he's a friend of Paul's. He's a co-worker of Paul's in the gospel. And we see now toward the end of Paul's life that Demas has deserted him. He's turned his back on him. He's stopped, you know, stopped returning his, his cause. He just kind of vanishes and he's gone for, for good. And it wasn't you know, because he was too busy. It wasn't because they had some mutually agreed upon other thing that Demas would go and do. Paul says he did it because he loved the world. He was in love with the present world. So there was some ulterior, you know, some you know, whether it's money or or status or prestige or you know maybe there was was danger and and like you know being associated with Paul and kind of being likened to Paul would damage his reputation. We don't know what it is, but we know that Demas loved other things more than he loved Paul. He loved the world more than he loved Paul and more than he, you know, wanted to be faithful to Paul as a friend. And so he left Paul and he deserted him, right? God... God doesn't promise that your friends and your family and the people around you will never leave you and will never forsake you. He does promise that he will never leave you and that he will never forsake you. But the reality is, it happened for Paul and it's more than likely going to happen to all of us. Friends, family, people that we love, people that we trust, people that we value their relationship, we're close with them, will desert us. And will and will leave us. Crescens has gone to Galatia. This is the only mention of Crescens in the Bible. It's the only, only thing we know. So we can assume that he's probably a friend or colleagues of, of Paul's as well. Uh, it seems like maybe uh, Crescens, uh, you know, going to Galatia was different than, than Demas uh, going to Thessalonica, right? It doesn't say that Crescens deserted uh, Paul. Um, it just says that he went to Galatia. It doesn't say that he did it because he was in love with this present world. It just says that he went to Galatia. So maybe he. You know, maybe it was for bad reason, maybe it was for good reason. Maybe he and Paul, you know, kind of together, um, you know, like agreed that he would go to uh, to Galatia. I mean, so in, I mean, we'll see later in verse 12, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. So that, so Paul kind of had a, a sending. So Demas kind of has a, a he deserted me. Tychicus has I sent him, and Crescens is just kind of we're not entirely sure. He just he just went to Galatia. Either, either I sent him, uh, we don't we don't really know. Don't really know what to, to read in in there. And Titus to Dalmatia. Uh, Titus is a fellow uh, worker of Paul's uh, in, in the gospel. He's mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 8. Uh, it seems, seems reasonable to think that, um, based on Paul's language, that, that both Crescens and Titus went with Paul's blessing. Like, they didn't desert him, they kind of, you know, left, and, and they left on good terms. He says, Luke alone is with me. Right? The only guy that hasn't deserted me, the only guy hasn't, who hasn't gone on to do something else is Luke, the physician who wrote the, the Gospel of Luke and wrote uh, the book of Acts. And then Paul says, uh, get Mark and bring him with you, for Mark is very useful to me for ministry. So Mark we met in the book of Acts. Um, he's a companion of Paul's. He went on, uh, went on Paul's missionary, his, Paul's first missionary journey that he took with Barnabas. Uh, uh, John Mark went with them on that. However, in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, uh, John Mark, so, so yeah, Mark, John, like at first he's called Mark and it's like John whose name is Mark, his name's John Mark, but then he's called, called Mark. But, but Mark in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, abandons Paul and abandons Barnabas. They're in the middle of their missionary journey. He says, I'm going, I'm going home to Jerusalem. I'm not cut out for this. This is more than I bargained for. And he leaves them in the middle of their trip and goes home. Later, after Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, they return back to Jerusalem. They're like, our trip is done. We're going to go home. We're going to take a little vacation. We're going to get some rest. We've got some meetings kind of at at the the mothership in Jerusalem. They had meetings about, you know, all kinds of theology that they're trying to get settled in the early church and make sure that we kind of have, uh, you know, we know what is true and what's biblical and what is is not. And so Paul and Barnabas are in on those meetings and they're talking about, about them. And after that, in Acts chapter Fifteen, Paul and Barnabas go to set out on a second missionary journey, where they're going to visit all of the churches that they uh, had planted and that they had been doing ministry with before. And when they go out for their second journey, uh, John Mark comes back and he's like, "I want to go with you now." And Paul's like, "No, like, fool me, fool me once, shame on, fool me once, shame on me. No, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me." That's what Paul says. It's in the Greek, and he uh, he says he says no. I I don't want Mark coming back with us because. Uh, because he deserted us the first time, he's probably going to desert us the second time, and Barnabas, Barnabas is Mark's cousin, so he kind of has some, some, you know, a little bit of bias, but his name also means son of encouragement, Someone who's very encouraging, very positive, always thinks the best of people, sure, let's bring him back along, how bad could it, could it be, this kind of thing. And Barnabas says, no, I want uh, Mark to come with us. Paul says no, Barnabas says yes, it's like a big fight, and they actually part company because of it. Paul says, I'm not taking him, if you want to be with Mark, then you're not going to be with me. And Barnabas says, hey, I, I don't like, you're like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be with Mark. I'm going to encourage him and be with him and, and trust him and think the best of him. So Barnabas and Mark, uh, they kind of go their own way. Um, and then Paul, uh, Paul takes Silas. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas and they go to Syria and Cilicia. Now, why does that whole story matter? Because Paul clearly had a big issue, a big problem with Mark. He didn't want to be with Mark. Mark was not useful to Paul. Mark was, Mark was a liability to Paul. He was an annoyance. He was someone that he, you know, it was, Paul did not want Mark around. And now Paul says, bring Mark to me. Because I, I want to see Mark. Mark is useful to me. I want to interact with, with him. He was useless, now he is useful. He was a liability, now he is an asset. Paul has forgiven Mark and they have been reconciled to one another which is instructive, right? It's instructive for us as Christians. Any, any of us, uh, in all likelihood, have, raci- have relationships that are in various degrees of, of health and kind of, you know, uh, you know, we probably have relationships that are strained in one way or another, right? Tension, things that we're experiencing. And the reality is that God, based on uh, Acts 15 and Second Timothy four eleven. Uh, we can we can deduce that God can and does restore relationships. God can and does soften people's hearts. Right, He helps them to forgive one another. He helps them to repent to one another. Sometimes it happens really quickly, you sin against someone, you confess your sin, you repent, they forgive you, you're reconciled right away. Sometimes it takes a really long time. We don't know how long it took with Paul and and Mark, but presumably it took a long time. And God worked restoration and reconciliation into their relationship. So God can do that, God does do that. And so for us as Christians, we look, we kind of survey the landscape of relationships in our lives and we think, this one's great. I, I love this person. I enjoy hanging out with him. I always have. This one is a lost cause. There's no way that me and that person are ever going to be on speaking terms again, ever going to enjoy hanging out with one another again. That's not, that's not how the Bible understands relationships and that's not how the Bible understands reconciliation and that's not how the Bible understands uh, restoration. Get Mark, bring him with me. I I was mad at him. We were not on speaking terms. I didn't think I would ever speak to him again. I didn't want to ever speak to him again. But now I want you to bring him with me because he is useful uh, for me. Paul says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. This is probably the guy who is, who is, uh, you know, hand delivered. Like, it seems like he was the, was the guy who hand delivered, uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, and Paul's letter to the Colossians based on some mentions of his name there. And based on the, the tenses of the Greek verbs in this, this verse, a lot of scholars think that Tychicus, uh, was actually the one who was carrying this letter to Timothy, uh, as, as well. So Tychicus, have sent to Ephesus, chapter thir- verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. There's nothing per- terribly spiritual about this. Paul's cold. He, w- he wants his cloak. He wants it's like A cloak would be like a, a heavy winter coat. Almost. It was basically a big blanket with a hole in it. And so they would kind of put it over there, and they would kind of just have a, a blanket around it. He says, bring that to me. Uh, it's going to get cold, and I need that so that I can keep warm. Also bring the books, and abro- above all, bring the, the parchments. So Timothy's in, in, or Paul's in prison, probably going to be executed very soon. He doesn't think he's going to live much longer at all, right? Bring my jack. bring my coat so that I can stay warm, and bring my Bible, bring, bring books. Bring, like, I need to be reading, I need to be learning, I need to be kind of uh, exercising my mind while I'm here in, in prison. Paul was an avid reader, right and he's eager to to have reading material he's eager to to learn and grow he's, he he wants to be diligent and study even when he is in is in prison and this is instructive for us as as well because because so so there's not a rule that says that all christian like there's not a rule that says all christians have to be avid readers right you won't get like excommunicated from the church if you're not like, if reading is not one of your main hobbies. Uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to be, Christianity is not exclusive to the highly educated, to the people that, you know, you, don't, you can be illiterate and, and uneducated and you can still repent and believe the gospel and love Jesus and obey him. You don't have to have a, a PhD to be a, a, a Christian. But God could have revealed himself to humanity any way that he chose, right? God could have he could have revealed himself to humanity with by by painting a picture, by you know, hand delivering a a DVD or, or you know something like but God could have revealed himself to humanity in any way that he chose, but he chose to reveal himself through a a book. Right? God chose to, to make sure that a book was written down and that it would be preserved throughout the generations so that his people could read about him and could know him through what they read in this book, in, in the Bible. And because of that, because, because God has revealed himself in a book, Christianity throughout all of church history has always been you know, a, a bookish religion, a, a religion that Christianity has always been pro reading, pro literacy, pro education. Chances are, uh, chances are you, know, you, you went to a school or, or you know someone that went to a school that was planted by Christians specifically to teach people how to read or to train people so that they could read better, so that they could read their Bibles, right? To, or to train pastors so that they could preach and tell people you know, how to read their Bible and t- to encounter Christ in their Bible and to, to walk with him, right? Throughout all of church history, right, Christians have said, People need to read so they can read their Bibles. Pastors need to be educated so that they can preach the gospel and help people walk with Jesus. Christianity has always been pro education, pro literacy, pro reading. Right? Most, of, most, of most, of, most of my seminary education was just, was just guided reading, right? It's probably like 5%. Other stuff, going to class, taking tests, whatever, and 95% reading. You'd show up on the first day of class and they'd, they'd hand you a syllabus with thousands of pages of, of reading for any given class. And so by the end of the semester, you'll have gone to class for a couple dozen hours, and you will have read thousands and thousands of, of pages. Uh, that's kind of how, how seminary is kind of designed and how it's, uh, how it's kind of instructed to, to go. And so after having done all that, what I, what I, what I can't say, right, again, I can't say the Bible says you have to read avidly, and if you don't, you're in sin. I can't say, you know, you'll be disciplined out of the church if you don't read. But what I can say is that in my experience and seemingly in Paul's experience, uh, like we as Christians are called to grow. We as Christians are called to be learning continually, right? We're called not to just like become a Christian and then like plateau and stagnate for the rest of our lives. We're called to be growing and learning and maturing and being sanctified. And in my experience and seemingly in Paul's, the best way to do that is by reading, I don't know, or listening to an audiobook. But, like, right, if, if you don't like reading, listen to an audiobook or something like that. But, but learning and listening and growing and experiencing what other people have thought and specifically doing it by, by reading. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon talking about this, this very verse. He says, We don't know what the books were about that Paul wanted sent to him. We don't know what they were about. We can only guess. Uh, we can only form some guess as to what those parchments were. But what's clear is that Paul, Had to read. Paul was an apostle. Even an apostle must read. Paul is inspired, and yet he wants books. He's been preaching for at least 30 years, and he wants books. Paul had literally seen the Lord, and yet he wants books. He'd had a wider experience than most men, and yet he wants books. He'd been been caught up into the third heaven and had heard things which were unlawful for him to utter to others, and yet he wants books. He'd written a major part of the New Testament, and yet he wants books. The apostle says to Timothy, and by extension he says to all of us Christians, give yourself unto reading. The man who never reads will never be read. The man who never quotes will never be quoted. The man who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Brothers and sisters, you need to read. Read theology, read the Puritans, read expositions of the Bible. I am quite persuaded that the very best way for you to be spending your leisure time is either reading or praying. You may get much instruction from books, which afterwards you may use as a true weapon in your Lord and Master's service. Paul cries, bring the books, and you, Christian, join in that cry. Right, so if you're if you're if you're not in the habit of reading, I would recommend that you start. If you don't know what to read, come ask me. I'll give you. I'll recommend a book for you to read. If you if you want to borrow a book from me, you you can can do it. All like this is, this is sure. This is definite. All Christians should be learning and growing. And I think the best way to do that is by by reading. Verse fourteen. Uh, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. So we've we've seen a number of people up until now. Uh, you know, Demas ministered with Paul, traveled with Paul, then he deserted Paul and turned his back. Demas started well and ended bad, right? Uh, you know, Mark, uh, Mark we saw deserted Paul in Acts 15, but now they've been reconciled. Now Mark is useful to Paul in ministry. Paul wants him by his side. Paul, uh, Mark started bad and ended good. Uh, you know, Luke. Started well and ended well, right? He started by, by writing the New Testament. And he's been faithful to Paul and he's still there, there with him. Alexander is just all bad. He started bad, he ended bad. This is a bad guy. He stayed bad the whole time. Right? Scholars think that this is probably the guy who got Paul arrested. He probably went and, like, you know, turned state's evidence on Paul, told him where he was, told him to to arrest him, maybe got some sort of monetary compensation or something uh, for it. They think it's probably the same guy that was mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says that he's rejected the gospel, that he's made shipwreck of his faith, that he's been handed over to Satan so that he might learn not to blaspheme. Paul has harsh words about uh, about, um, Alexander the coppersmith. Harsh words for a bad guy. And in the verses following, we can get, we can kind of glean a few insights from Paul as to how we as Christians can and should relate with, engage with, interact with enemies, with our enemies, with enemies of God, enemies of the gospel, enemies of, of us as, as people. The first principle of how we can and should interact with enemies of God and our enemies is to... Is to uh, like kind of not take revenge give up our right to take revenge and instead leave vengeance to the lord alexander did me great harm the lord will repay him according to his deeds not i'm going to not i am going to you know find a, a way to get back at him the lord will repay uh, alexander according to his deeds not my job to get back at him when he, just because he's done something to me. It's not my responsibility to make sure that everyone pays for every sin that they ever commit against me. Paul says, I can walk through this life. I can be faithful to God. I can obey his word. And then right, when, when that results in people uh, that want to bless me, by all means, praise God. And when it results in people wanting to, to hurt me, then I don't need to take vengeance on my behalf. I'll let God take vengeance on my behalf. God is the king, God is the judge, God is the one who's going to make sure that the, the cosmic scales of justice are all balanced out. I don't, need to, I don't need to do that. I don't need to put myself in God's place as the judge of the universe and take vengeance. I can, I can let God take vengeance for me. Same guy who said in Romans chapter 12, Bless those who persecute you. Bless them and do not curse them. Repay no one evil for evil. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For God has said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So the first principle uh, from verse 14, God will take vengeance for us. God will repay. We don't need to, to get revenge. But the second principle in verse 15 is that we should still be careful. We should still watch out for enemies of the gospel and not subject ourselves needlessly to, to more persecution or more harm than we, than we need to, right? Paul says, Timothy, uh, Alexander's done great harm to me. I'm here in prison, probably going to get killed because of what Alexander has done, so you watch out. Don't let him do something like that to you. Be be careful, Right? So there's there's some Christians that uh, you know need to hear need to be exhorted and counseled by verse 14 that are that are super aggressive and they're always wanting to fight back you punch I counterpunch I don't want to let anyone beat me I don't want to let anyone take advantage of me I'm going to get revenge right and that's that's wrong and that's that's sinful but there are some Christians who are naive or who who lead with their jaw and who are just perpetually being hurt by others and taken advantage of by others because they put themselves in harm's way. They put their families in harm's way. They're not shrewd. They're not careful. And Paul says just because you're not supposed to take revenge on others when they harm you doesn't mean that you should actively, willfully put yourself in a situation where they can and will harm you. So you know, Sometimes the most godly thing to do is to avoid a situation. Someone takes advantage of me, and I'm going to put precautions in place to not let that happen again. Someone's always arguing with me, and bitter, and hostile, and hassling me. Then I'm just going to not uh, interact with that person that much. I'm not going to spend as much time around them. Someone is physically violent with me, then I'm going to remove myself and make sure that they can't do it again. That's, that's okay. It's even commanded in Scripture to beware of the enemies of God and to beware of the enemies of the God gospel, to not let them harm you any more than they, than they need to. So one, uh, don't take revenge. Leave it to the Lord. Two, be careful and, and watch out for enemies of the gospel. And then three, we see in verse 16, is to forgive. Forgive just like Christ has forgiven us. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me, but may it not be charged against them right? Not only am I going to not actively seek out revenge against Alexander and against people who have opposed me or deserted me, right? Not only am I going to to not try to get them back or to, to you know, be, you know, feel uh, satisfaction for how I can hurt them in return, I'm actually going to forgive them. I'm actually going to pray for them. I'm actually going to pray that God would be gracious to them. I'm going to hope genuinely in my soul that God would treat them better than they deserve to be, to be treated. Sounds a lot like uh, Stephen, right? The first martyr who's killed uh, in Acts chapter 7. There's an angry mob beating him to death with rocks and stones. And he says, Behold, I see the heavens have opened. The Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Or or it sounds like Jesus, on the cross, right? Beaten, mocked, stripped naked, crown of thorns, nailed to a cross, you know, hung publicly to die in disgrace. And as he's hanging there, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So Paul says, when you, when you encounter enemies, enemies of you, enemies of God, enemies of, of the gospel, don't take revenge, leave vengeance to the Lord, right? Watch out and be careful. Don't, don't be naive and let them harm you unnecessarily and forgive them just like Jesus has uh, forgiven you. And then in verse 17, he kind of gives you the foundation, helps you to understand like these are tall orders, right? So to forgive and to not take revenge, uh, you know, it, these are, are difficult orders that, that, I, that I'm asking you to do, but Paul says I can do it Because the Lord stood by me and the Lord strengthen me right i can stand firm even when everyone abandons me because i don't my, my the bedrock of my salvation my soul is not resting on my friends and and other people right i am i don't derive my my meaning and my satisfaction and my salvation and my life from the fact that my friends uh, uh, approve of me or they think highly of me or that they are there for me uh, my, the bedrock of my salvation is not other people It's God. I trust in the Lord. I delight in the Lord. The Lord is my strength. He is the one who is sufficient for me. He is the one that I trust in. God, not other people, God is the one who rescued me from the lion's mouth. God is the one who will rescue me from every evil deed and who will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. I can persevere even when people abandon me and harm me, right? Because I recognize that I need God more than I need them. They don't save me and take care of me. God saves me and takes care of me. And so I trust God to do that. But, you know, lest you... Unless you think for for a moment, based on that, that Paul was some, you know... Lone Ranger, right? I trust in God and I don't need anyone I I just need God in my Bible. And I don't need any I don't need a church. I don't need pastors. I don't need anyone telling me what to do. I'm my own boss. I'm my own king. I don't answer to anyone. It's all just me and that and that's it. This whole passage, right? This kind of declaration that I trust in the sovereignty of God and God is my savior and I need God more than I need anyone else is couched within a passage where Paul's talking about how much he needs everyone else. I need friends. Please come to me. Please visit me. Please bring me my coat. Bring me my books. These people left me and it hurt my feelings. Luke is with me and that's an encouragement to me. Uh, you're coming and I'm excited about that. Bring Mark because he is useful to me. So, so there are like two truths in tension in this passage that are, are helpful for us and instructive for us. One, God is your savior. God is the one that you need. If everyone else in the world leaves you and abandons you, God never will. God has saved you. God will keep you. God will bring you safely into heaven. So trust him and lean on him because he is the one that you need. No one else, just God. And you need other people, right? Maybe not in the same way that you need God. You don't need them to save you. You don't need their approval. You don't need them to esteem you highly. You don't need them to celebrate you and think that you're great, but you need other people. You need relationships. You need, you need the ministry of presence from other people. You need to be uh, with other people and to, to minister to them with your presence. You need people to encourage you and to hold you accountable. You need people to be in community with you. Right? You need God in a particular, special way to save you from sin and watch over your life as your sovereign Lord. But you need other people because you were created to be in relationship with other people. You were created not to be alone. Right? You, you were created in the image of God, and God is not alone. For all of eternity, even before creation, God was not alone. God always has been. In relationship, not with humanity, not with any creature, angel, or anything else. God has always been in relationship with himself within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Living in relationship, living in community with one another. And since you were created in God's image, the same is true of you. You, like God, were created to experience real life-giving relationships, right? Deep Vibrant, biblical community, loving one another, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, rejoicing with one another, and mourning with one another. So, so trust in God and trust in God alone, but live in real, meaningful relationships with with others. And Paul, in, this, in these couple of verses here, gives us two reasons why, like two, it's kind of the, the end goal, the reason why, this, this is why I've saved you, Paul, this is why I want you to trust in me, this is why I want you to cultivate relationships with others, there, there are two kind of telos, end goals that I have in mind for all, for all of this. One is in verse 17, right, the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. One reason why God has saved you, one reason why God has called you to live in a community with other people is so that the world can hear the gospel. The world can know who God is and experience who God is. God wants everyone to, to hear about and to be exposed to how glorious he is and how great he is. He wants them to come to Christ and so that he can save them from their, their sin. God wants people to repent and, and believe the gospel. He wants all of that, and God saved you so that you could proclaim the gospel to the world. Right? God didn't save us and stand by us and strengthen us so that we could sit on the sidelines and recuse ourselves from his kind of global cosmic work of building his, his church. God saved you, stood by you, and strengthened you so that the gospel might be fully proclaimed through you, so that the nations might hear the gospel from you. If God has saved you from your sin, he did it so that you could tell the good news of Jesus to people around you. If God has saved you, that is your call. It's It's not a matter of I don't feel called to do that. That is your calling. You have been called to proclaim the gospel to others. And the second reason is connected to the first. It's in verse 18. Right To him, to God, be the glory forever and ever. So God saves people, strengthens them, and mobilizes them so that they can proclaim the gospel to the world. And God saves people and strengthens them so that he will receive the glory, so that he will be made much of, so that people will celebrate how good God is and how glorious God is right god saves people so that so that the world will look uh, at the church the world will look at the glory of god and think about how great god is so that god would be magnified god would be exalted god would be right so that so that all people all over the place and angels and cosmic you know uh, principalities and rulers they would all look at god and say wow I can't believe how awesome God is. I can't believe that God would save sinners. I can't believe that God would save any sinners, let alone those sinners, right? What an awesome, incredible, glorious God uh, we have, right? To, To him, to God be all the glory in the entire universe forever and ever, God saved you so that you would proclaim the gospel to the world, and God saved you so that his name would be glorified and made great, so that his fame would be spread all throughout the world, all throughout all of creation. And in verse 19, greet Prisca and Aquila... In the household of Onesephorus, Prisca is the variant of the name Priscilla. It's probably a, a, probably a married couple, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they served along Paul for quite some time. Uh, now, apparently, they're serving near or close to Timothy. And so he says, hey, after you get this letter, when you're on the way here, stop by, tell them I said hi, because I love them. Onesephorus is, uh, is also mentioned in chapter 1, verse 16. Apparently, he's a friend and a benefactor, someone who's been faithful to Paul and has provided for Paul. And I mean... Uh, everything that Paul has at this point, he says, I kind of owe in some way to Onesephorus. Erastus remained in Corinth. He's mentioned in Romans 16. So apparently uh, he holds some sort of public office. Romans 16 says that he's the the city treasurer. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. We don't know what's wrong with Trophimus, uh, but it seems to be serious. It's serious enough to warrant a mention in this letter. I mean, it's serious enough that Paul, who's an apostle and could heal people, couldn't heal Trophimus, Serious enough that Luke, who's a doctor and could treat people, uh, was not able to treat and help uh, Trophimus get better. So, so Trophimus is sick, right? Sometimes people get sick. That's right. It doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. It doesn't mean that you don't have enough faith. It doesn't mean that the people around you don't care enough or don't love God enough. Sometimes people get sick. 21. Do your best to come to me before winter. Right? It would get cold in the winter. A lot of the travel routes would shut down for a few months uh, during the winter because of storms and dangerous conditions. And so Paul is basically saying, please come before winter because if you don't, you won't be able to get here until you know, late March. You won't be able to get here until the spring. And to be perfectly honest, I'll probably, I'll probably be dead by then. I'll if you don't come before the winter, I'll probably be dead and I'll never see you again. Eubulus sends greetings as do Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and the brothers. I don't know who any of these guys are. I don't think anyone does. They're, this is the only place that they're mentioned in, in the Bible. Um, but they were in close enough proximity to Paul. Right? They weren't at Paul's trial. They weren't necessarily there with him like Luke was, but they were in close enough proximity that they could send greetings to Timothy to encourage him. And then and then, verse 22, the last verse, the Lord be with you, grace be with your spirit. Kind of one final, last, brief summation of, of the gospel, right? The Lord be with you, right? Nearness to God, reconciliation to God, relationship with God, and grace be with you. Grace, gift, unmerited favor. And then Paul signs off please come. I want to see you again. In the meantime, I'm trusting God. I'm relying on God. God will get me through this. Even if everyone abandons me, God never will. And even still, I, I need you. I need my coat. I need my Bible. I need my books. I need my, I need my friend. So please come to me and be with me before I, before I die. That's Second Timothy. Let's, let's, uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pray that we could trust you and abide in you and be content in you. Lord, we pray that you would be uh, enough for us, that even when everything else in our lives fails us, we pray that we could rest in you and hold fast to you. And yet at the same time, Lord, we recognize that we were created for relationship. We were created for community. We have a real profound need for other believers to come alongside us and to encourage us. And so we pray that we could uh, cultivate and lean into those relationships. Lord, we thank you for saving us and for keeping us so that we could proclaim the gospel and bring glory to your name. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.